But I remember, oh, after the first uh, month or so that I was uh, in my job, I had a great boss, a great mentor, a gentleman named Ted French, who, who really just taught me the whole business. I followed and copied everything he did, and he was a great teacher. But one day he said, hey, Tim, on our lunch break, why don't I take you down to Brooks Brothers and let's buy you a, a nice pinstripe suit and some conservative ties and a, and a few white shirts? Because this was this was the late 70s, and I uh, I think the suit I had was a, a light blue kind of, a, you know, very 70s-looking suit, but just did not fit in in the conservative business culture of New York. So I kind of had to remake my image. It was that point I, I bought the book, uh, How to, what is it? How to Dress for Success. Podcasting from Boulder, Colorado. This is the Baby Got Backstory podcast, where we dive into the story behind the story of today's most inspiring storytellers, creators, and entrepreneurs. I like big backstories, and I cannot lie. I am your host, Mark Gutman. I'm Mark Gutman, and on today's episode of Baby Got Backstory, we are talking to Tim Williams, who is on a mission to help professional service firms escape the tyranny of an unfocused business model. Okay, okay, here is my regular plea for ratings and reviews over at Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Apple and Spotify are the two giants in the industry, and they use these ratings as part of their algorithms. And this determines the rating on their charts, and we want to climb those charts. We want to go up those charts. We want to improve on those charts. We are already doing well, but we can always do better. Those ratings help us to build an audience, not an audience, a community, which then helps us to continue to produce this show. Please, if you haven't rated or reviewed us over at one of those platforms, whichever one you're listening on and you think we are worthy of a strong rating, please go ahead and do so. I would appreciate it so, so much. Tim Williams is a globally recognized expert in the areas of business and pricing strategy. Tim is a noted author, international speaker, and presenter for business organizations worldwide. Based on his expertise in positioning and pricing, Tim has been interviewed by news gathering organizations including The Economist, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Bloomberg News, The Guardian, Toronto Globe and Mail, The Australian Financial Review, and numerous business publications ranging from Europe to Asia. Suffice to say, Tim Williams is a big deal. Tim is the author of two books, Take a Stand for Your Brand and Positioning for Professionals. And as a consultant to professional service firms, Tim has worked with hundreds of organizations ranging from mid-sized independents to multinational networks and global holding companies. As you'll hear, he began his career on Madison Avenue, working for major multinational advertising agencies, and later served as president and CEO of several mid-sized independent firms. Tim knows this space. And as the leader of the Ignition Consulting Group, Tim now advises the leaders and managers of professional service firms on the development and execution of positioning and pricing strategies. And this is his story, as well as some practical positioning and pricing insights. Oh. 
Tim, thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Uh, let's hop right into it. Can you go ahead and give me a little background on who is Tim Williams? Wow, where to start? The current iteration of Tim Williams is uh, my role as a consultant uh, running a, a small but focused in, uh, consultancy that focuses on the ad agency space. So primarily marketing communications firms, uh, which is a pretty narrow niche if you think about it, um, but also other types of uh, marketing firms, PR firms, digital agencies. uh, And to some extent, I get dragged into the rest of the professional service world, law firms, accounting firms, and so forth. That's not my sweet spot, but Enough of what I do is relevant to other areas of professional service that um, I, I do some work in that area as well. Uh, I, I, so how's that for a start? Yeah, that's perfect. That's 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 excellent. And you know, you you started that by saying the current iteration of Tim Williams. Let's talk about the early iteration of Tim Williams. What were you like as a, as a young child? Were you interested in these types of topics like marketing and advertising? As a, I don't know, let's say like an eight year old Tim Williams. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, had my own radio station as an eight year old and would uh, drag kids from the neighborhood and and uh, printed my own little newspaper photography and music buff. And in my formative years, I was always thinking, how could I take these bits and pieces of things that I love and and make a living at it? So my uh, my my answer by the time I got to high school was to be a professional musician. I was heavily involved in in music and, and band and jazz band. And so I uh, decided to declare a music major when I went to college and, and had my sight set on life as a film composer. But I, I quickly learned in my freshman year of college that uh, that was going to be a difficult way to make a living. There were like 10 really well-known film composers that uh, it'd be a hard thing to break into. So uh, I decided, all right, I'll keep music as a hobby, and which I do to this day, and I will uh, do something a little more commercial. And that's when advertising caught my eye. And before we get into the advertising space, so like, what was your radio show as a kid? What did that cover? What, what, who, who, who were you emulating? Like, oh, uh, local remember? local news. Uh, I would go hang out. I I grew up in a small town, uh, just a, a suburb of Salt Lake City, Utah, and we had a, a radio station, like every small town does. And I I would go up and just sit on the floor of this radio station for the better part of the day in my summers and and listen and watch and kind uh, a kind guy who ran the place Jack Tranter took me under his wing he'd give me all his old records and the promotional things that he got sent by by musicians and artists and I'd take them home and uh, repurpose it all for my, for my own for my own show I just I just loved it yeah, and in addition, I can imagine you know when you get all the swag and all like the promo promo items, like yeah, that, that's certainly an attractive attractive bit of the business. But what else did you love about it? I mean, what was compelling? What you know, what, when you saw that, were what were you dreaming about and thinking about? Well, I was um, I, I like the music part, but I've always been fascinated with the just the whole 
world of mass communications, the, the ability to get, get the word out to, to lots of people in a, in a mass audience in a mass kind of way. And, and, uh, so that, you know, that's kind of part of what drew me to it. I, I just felt like that would, that would be an important job, an important thing to be involved in, to, to be part of the industry that reports the news and just keeps people aware of things that they should know about. Um, yeah, that's about as close as I can get to an answer, I think. Oh, that's a good answer. And as as you were an up and coming musician, what instrument were you playing? Well, I I started out playing uh, trombone, and uh, that that worked fine in in uh, jazz band and you know orchestras and so forth. But also also piano. My my mother started me on piano at a pretty early age, and um, I immediately started like. A lot of people do composing my own pieces, and I, my my dad, uh, who was kind of an audiophile, he had a early, you know, eight track recorder, and I would uh, do my own eight track recordings with orchestration of just me on 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 piano, mostly laying down multiple tracks, but you know, really uh, having a lot of fun just with early versions of that technology, which is way way better and easier now isn't it no, it sure is and like almost anyone can be a composer now and it uh well at least uh, have have the tools to be a composer i'd still take some yeah that's right exactly yeah. yeah did you have a favorite uh film composer someone or a favorite film score that you were like always either mimicking or replicating or looked up to at that time when you thought oh. you wanted to be a composer well i'd have to say the early westerns uh El elmer bernstein um, the the magnificent seven, you know that that the whole the whole western soundtrack genre, which is probably my largest playlist on on Apple Music, uh, is, is really what what got me going. I and I'm a western kid, you know, b born and raised in in Utah, and and just uh, identify with uh, with all of the themes and the imagery that, that comes along with that you know southern utah is where most of the a lot of the western films were, were made the john wayne films and and it just does something to me to to be in that environment and and hear western film scores to this day uh i spend uh maybe half my life in in moab in southern utah which if, if, if you've been is kind of the epicenter of red rock country uh, arches national park and others and when we, when we, my wife and I drive into Moab Valley, uh, there's usually something like, you know, the Silverado soundtrack playing at, you know, full decibels in, in, in our car, because uh, it still has that same effect on me. And I can imagine I, next time I go to Southern Utah, I'm going to do that because uh, I, I, as you're speaking and, and, and talking and describing that, it really took me to a place of thinking, I know how majestic and, and, um, how just vibrant that landscape is. And I can, I can see you as a, as a young, young boy being, you know, Hey, there, this is where the, this is not where movies are made. This is where Westerns happen, you know? And I yeah. think that there's something, something really, really neat about that. And it is, it's not like a movie set. It's real. And yeah. That's it, it, the real thing. Yeah. And so you mentioned you were in college and before you kind of jumped into advertising, like what were your interests in college? What did you think you were going to do at that point? 
Well, I think like a lot of us, I probably had two or three majors by the time I was through my first first year, first couple of years. Uh, polit- political science was one of them, uh, not related at all to uh, what I ended up doing. I thought maybe maybe business school, I should just continue and get an MBA. My brother was a law professor and had lots of family members who, who had, had followed that path. But honestly... None of that motivated me. I thought that the money part of that might be nice, but wow, what a boring life to be an attorney. You know, I just thought that doesn't exercise any of the creative interests that that I have. So I, um, when I took my first course, Advertising 101, I thought, this is it. I finally found it. This is it. This is one, one discipline that incorporates almost all of my interests, writing, music, broadcasting, um, the visual arts, you know, all of that, it's just kind of wrapped into one in, in the ad business. Yeah. And so you, that light goes off and, and touches you and you get excited. And, but as you just outlined, uh, there is a lot of, there are a lot of facets to the ad business. There's a lot of different things and some of them seem very complimentary and some of them Mm. are kind of far apart. How did you know, like, how did you then, say, I want to do this? Or was it more, hey, I just need to get there? Well, I, I I think it's that fork in the road that a lot of people in in the advertising marketing space face, especially in school, which is, all right, do I want to go business side or, or creative side? I mean, that's the essential choice. And not everybody can do both things. I kind of felt like I could. I, I had interest in going in both directions. And so, I thought, well, I'll get a holistic education. I'll also, uh, at least in this space, I'll also learn about media. I'll learn about PR, and so that I can be as well-rounded as I can. But, but still, I faced that same fork when I graduated and sent my resume rather presumptuously, presumptuously to the top twenty-five agencies in New York, and uh, said, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna." leave uh, my homeland here. I'm going to the big city. If I want to, if I want a career, if I want to have a serious career in advertising, I've, I've got to go to New York. So when I started uh, applying for jobs and interviewing for jobs, I still didn't know, do I want to go account side or creative side? Because I felt like I could do either, either job as a writer or as a uh, account exec. And Fortunately, I landed at a place that allowed me to do both, both things. I, my first job was at an agency called Marsteller and its sister agency, Burson Marsteller, um, which is, you know, is now a Marsteller is not a name that, that's known now, but it was one of the top 20 agencies at the time. It was purchased by Young and Rubicam while I was working there and great place to start. But they had this um, system they called Copy Contact, which allowed account people who had who had the ability and to, to also write to write their own copy for the clients they worked on so that was pretty unusual it was really lucky for me um, so I was able to do both things uh, at least for the first few years of my career yeah and what was that like I mean a kid from Utah out in New York City and you're working at this cool agency yeah, yeah what was that like for you well you know I I'd lived 
other places part of that. I hadn't spent my hadn't spent my whole life in Utah. We lived in Europe when I was a kid. My dad worked for the U.S. government, and and you know, so I had seen the world. I I traveled the U.S. And, and a lot of Europe. So it's not like I was completely wet behind the ears, but it was still quite quite an adjustment. Uh, I was a young married. We had an eight month old son, which made me kind of uh, an anomaly. Just that. I mean, all my other friends of a similar age were were certainly uh, single and couldn't imagine being married with a child. So it was a it was it was a one of the smartest decisions I ever made because I learned so much. I mean, I just soaked it all up as a sponge. And uh, to this day, I've always felt like I I could easily go back and uh, and and do that all over again. And fortunately, I I kind of don't have to because a lot of the a lot of the work I do in my consulting business is in fact in New York and I I've ended up working with a lot of the agencies that um that that I you know dealt with and wanted to work for when I was a young man. Yeah, and what was what was hard about it? I mean, you know, you, you certainly shared the the exciting side of it, but what was mm-hmm. hard about being in that business at that time and what you were seeing? Well, there was just a lot that a Western kid doesn't know about the whole Ivy League scene. You know, I felt like I was pretty culturally current and that, you know, I would fit in pretty well. <laughs> but I but I remember, oh, after the first uh, month or so that I was uh, in my job, I had a great boss, a great mentor, a gentleman named Ted French, who who really just taught me the whole business. I followed and copied everything he did, and he was a great teacher. But one day he said, hey, Tim, on our lunch break, why don't I take you down to Brooks Brothers and let's buy you a a nice pinstripe suit and some conservative ties and a a few white shirts? Because this was this was the late 70s. And I I think the suit I had was a a light blue kind of, you know, very 70s looking suit, but just did not fit in in the conservative business culture of New York. So I kind of had to remake my image. It was that point I, I bought the book, uh, How to, what is it? How to Dress for Success and learned, uh, you know, all the apparel I should be wearing in uh, metropolitan business centers. And so where, where did your career go from there? I, um, at that point, I had, um, I'd been at Marsteller for about four years, and I I got word that my mother had died, and my 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 father said, uh, "Hey, I'm thinking about um, selling or moving out of the family home, and how would you would you be interested in coming back and you know taking over the house, and you know you could have a career here." And I really fought the idea, really wrestled with it for quite some time, but then I thought, "Wow." It's going to be forever before we get in a house living in, in New York on a starting salary as a young married. I mean, we had no discretionary income whatsoever. <laughs> so I thought, OK, that's probably not such a bad idea. So we went back. Um, I got a job still in the business with uh, one, one of the, the really good agencies um, in Salt Lake City. And that lasted about uh, less than a year. It was complete total culture shock for me. I thought, wow, that was, a, that was really a bad decision. I mean, Salt Lake's a fine place to live, but I am not going to learn and develop and advance the way I want to here. So 
I uh, contacted a few headhunters I'd met in New York and said, I just get me back to New York about as fast as you can. And um, they asked me which agencies I'd like to work for. And I, I told them, well, honestly, Ogilvy and Mather would be at the top of my list. So I get a call back saying, we've got a perfect job for you at Ogilvy. I said, great. They said, but it's not in New York. It's in Houston. I thought, Houston? Wow, that's never been on my considered set. But it was a good fit for me. I went and interviewed for the job and uh, moved uh, moved my little family to Houston, where I worked for for Ogilvy, and that was a that was a, a great experience because Ogilvy they consider themselves the teaching hospital of ad agencies, and and, and so you know you're always learning. Uh, great agency with a great reputation, and I was there at the in the early days of the you know technology boom and the personal computer i mean we we went and pitched this account that 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 was uh, formed by a couple of guys from texas instruments and it was a computer brand called compact everybody knows compact there were they had six employees and um we weren't sure we wanted it because it looked like maybe kind of a, a a risky thing we didn't know if it was for real but we we won this little account, and a year later, they made the cover of Business Week as the fastest growing business in you know the, the history of the Fortune 500. So that was a really interesting wild ride to be in on the early days of tech because I I was the account supervisor on that business. Yeah, and what was it? You know, maybe give a little more color about what it was like to be in the ad business in Houston. I mean, to your point. Not really on most people's radar then or probably yeah. now. I mean, it's a huge no. city and it's a huge, you know, commercial center. And so it makes a lot of sense. But I mean, was there a part of you that kind of felt like, oh, like I'm kind of I'm kind of going down to the minors or I'm playing, you know, different kind of ball here? I certainly would have felt that way if it hadn't been uh, Ogilvy and Mather. Um, I, that, that's really the only reason I, I did it. And Houston, you know, as you say, it's a big city. It's the fourth biggest city in America. Most people don't know that. It's a sprawling metropolis. And and for a Rocky Mountain kid, it's not a great place to live. You know, it's flat, it's hot, it's humid. There's not a lot of outdoor recreation. I mean, I, I think, you know, for me, people like me, it's kind of a tough place to, to live. But uh, it's a dynamic business center. Um, from an advertising standpoint, at the time, it was it was it was an outpost for multinational agencies. I mean, many multinationals had offices there, mostly because of the oil business. And our largest account was Shell. You know, probably the largest account within all of Ogilvy was Shell, and it was run out of Houston. So, it was an interesting mix of New York professionalism and Texan folkiness. So it was okay, you know. It was it was a it was a good experience. I I enjoyed it. Yeah, and when you put it like that, it sounds like it potentially was quite a bit of fun. Yeah, it was fun. You know, Texans are fun people, and and so as I say, they they a lot of the half the office were transplanted New Yorkers. So there was that half of the culture, and the other half were kind of local grown Texans, and it, culturally. It, it was it was a lot of fun, you know. They they uh, knew how to take care of their clients. Yet we did it in a professional way. If that makes sense. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and I get the, the appeal of Ogilvy. I mean, even today, I mean, I think it's, you know, the, the gold standard, it's an agency I'm always, you know, just intrigued in and fought by and following and yeah. hold, holding really high regard. And so why did that come to an end? What happened? Well, I, um, didn't, we didn't exactly love living in Houston. Um, I thought the career experience was, was great, but we really missed, uh, the West. We missed the mountains and I had in the back of my mind, like a lot of people, my entrepreneurial streak where I felt like some, at some point in my career, I do want to start my own firm. I want to partner up with someone and, and, and just give, give it a shot. And I thought, you know, Salt Lake's probably the place to do it. Uh, at, at the time, you know, still not a, a big ad center, not, not thought of in that way. And I thought, so that's, that's extra challenging. Could we, could we establish an agency in a place like Salt Lake City that, that could do world-class work and, and gain um, a top reputation? That, that was the challenge. So I moved back and, and partnered with a guy named Scott Rockwood, and we formed the agency Williams and Rockwood and had lots of early successes. My, our goal from, from the start was let's do the kind of work that would attract the attention, not just of clients in, you know, in our own state borders, but, but well beyond uh, California and New York. I mean, could we do that? And we did. I mean, we succeeded in uh, one of our early clients was uh, CBS and out of entertainment out of LA, CBS News in New York, NPR, you know, based out of Washington. That was largely pro bono, but what the heck? I mean, it, it helps burnish your reputation. Um, you know, Mrs. Fields Cookies based in Utah, but certainly considered a, a national kind of a brand. And we uh, were featured in communication arts as uh and the the one show in new york the one club invited us to put on our own show at the one club and hosted a special soiree we got quite a bit of attention in the trade press and ad week and ad age and so forth and i thought wow you know this is kind of what i'd envisioned and we did that for 10 years and another similarly minded agency in town uh, had the idea that we should merge and kind of get a little more critical mass and attract bigger clients. So we, we, we merged. And um, it was at that point that I decided to do the, the next thing that I was uh, certainly on my mental list, which I didn't plan, but, but the timing just turned out to be right for me to, sell my interest in the agency once it was once the merger was completed and all the partners were in place and the accounts were stabilized that's when i made the decision to start my current business ignition consulting group was it hard to leave that agency that you founded i mean you could hear the tempo in your voice i mean you're proud of it and uh rightfully so and there was some excitement in your voice that i heard as mm -hmm. you were reliving that sure like, yeah like 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 that must have been difficult. It, it, it was difficult, made, made easier by the fact that the, the merger, like a, a lot of um, businesses that, that get together and it appears to be a good match from a business standpoint and from a client conflict standpoint and good, you know, good synergy from a business standpoint. But, but the cultural piece of it was just difficult. Um, you know, I meet so many 
agencies uh, and agency principals that have had similar experiences where the 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 culture one culture when you put two cultures together one kind of has to dominate and uh, there was a that that was difficult so that made it easier for me to to make the decision it didn't feel like the same place that uh, my partner and I had had worked so hard to establish and, and the AC is, uh, is still in business to this day they changed their names called called Richter 7 so still still going and um all the original partners have moved on uh was that uh, was a while ago so that made it easier for me to to make this decision to hang out a shingle start a consulting business i've always had an academic streak my my siblings are all all have advanced degrees many of them have phd's and so I was the black sheep in the family, you know, the ad guy, that the, the one person without the PhD. And uh, but I, I knew I liked to write and speak and present and teach. And I thought, here's a chance to do it. The 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 scariest part was I was I was fairly young, at least as consultancies go. I mean, you you look at a lot of people who who move into the consulting business, they're often in their late fifties, early sixties, kind of a, you know, pre-retirement thing that they, they, they want to do for a while before they, you know, until they turn late sixties or 70. I was, I was 48 and, you know, had still kids at home. So that was, that was a little risky, especially to say, I'm going to focus exclusively on the agency space. I'm not going to work client side. Um, I'm going to just, do what I think I know best. And that's the market that I feel like I know. And what's the worst that could happen? You know, worst that could happen is after a year, I can't pay my bills. And so therefore I will go look for a partnership in, in another agency, or I could always move back to, to New York or elsewhere. I, I wasn't worried about that. And what was the trajectory of that? Of that business? I mean, did you have a client waiting for you? I mean, did you literally hang a shingle and just kind of Wait by the phone. I mean, what'd that look like for you? Yeah, I I did not have a client waiting for me, but you know, I I felt like I'd worked pretty hard to establish a good reputation. So there were agencies in in the in the Mountain West, in the region, and elsewhere who knew who I was. Uh, we belonged to an agency, one of these independent agency networks, um, which is now called Magnet where I had met lots of agency principals uh, throughout North America and in Europe and other places that all belong to this network and they'd become friends. And that's who were a lot of my early clients were, were the agencies who knew me and who I had a relationship with. So that, that really helped to, to have that, um, that, that business, those relationships materialized within the first couple of weeks of, of me, kind of announcing what I was doing. So that that definitely helped. This episode brought to you by Wild Story. Wait, isn't that your company? It is. And without the generous support of Wild Story, this show would not be possible. A brand isn't a logo or a tagline or even your product. A brand is a person's gut feeling about a product, service, or company. It's what people say about you when you're not in the room. WildStory helps progressive founders and savvy marketers build purpose-driven brands that connect their business goals with the customers they want to serve 
so that both the business and the customer needs are met. This results in crazy, happy, loyal customers that purchase again and again, and this is great for business. If that sounds like something you and your team might want to learn more about, reach out at www.wildstory.com and we'd be happy to tell you more. Now back to our show. Well, today, front and center on your website, it says stand for something and get paid for it. So first of all, kudos to someone who is a professional positioning. That's great positioning. But uh, that idea, and I, I love that idea. I mean, it really resonates with me and I think it resonates with a lot of people. But was that a formed idea at that early time? I mean, is that what you were going out and trying to talk to these agencies about? The, the first half of it was the stand for it half. The get paid for it came later. I'll, I'll explain. So I, I knew that the, the primary thing I wanted to do for agencies was help them with their positioning strategy, with their business strategy, because it's one of the great ironies in our business that the, these professional service firms, agencies that are in the business of helping their clients develop a distinctive brand and focus strategy are, you know, really poor at doing it for themselves. I mean, it's the, it's the example of the dentist with bad teeth, you know, it's uh, agencies just lack, for the most part, lack the, the, the discipline to, and, and objectivity, quite honestly, to do it for themselves. So, I thought this is where I'm going. This is where I think agencies need help. So I made the decision actually about the same time I started the, the the business to write a book. So I went to work on a book, which is a heck of a lot of work. People who've, who've written books know that. And um, I published Take a Stand for Your Brand in the early years of, of my business. And that was a real catalyst to, um, to, to help me, um, get more, more, uh, interested prospects. Um, writing the book helped catalyze, uh, for me, the, my own process, my own thought process and a framework for helping agencies with their positioning strategy. <clears throat> uh, five years later, I wrote a second book called positioning for professionals, which is on the same theme. It just takes what I'd learned in five subsequent years and, and, you know, puts it into a kind of a second iteration. So that's the stand for it piece The get paid for it piece that came later because what I, half of what I do is teach positioning strategy to professionals. The other half of what I now do is teach pricing strategy to professionals. And I would have never imagined that I would be teaching pricing. I haven't, taken a single class in accounting. I'm not drawn to the idea of a career in accounting or finance necessarily, but I met a gentleman named Ron Baker, who is an accountant, a CPA, who had written some books about what's called value-based pricing for professional firms. And it basically, uh, he's on a mission to bury the billable hour and to, to show how billing by the hour is is a wildly suboptimal way of capturing the value you create for your clients. And when I met Ron, he just turned my world upside down when it came to the pricing because I was deeply ingrained, as most agency professionals are, in the hourly rate, hourly billing, you know, cost accounting based on hourly rates and utilization rates and all of that nonsense, which I now believe is nonsense. 
So he showed me the way and completely changed my paradigm. And so half of what I do is now helping help change the paradigm of um, mostly agencies, including the, the, the multinationals now on a better way to price their services and capture the value they create for their clients. And so let's, you know, let's not assume anything and, and let's clarify and, and, and thank you so much for breaking up that, uh, that very clear positioning statement into two, two areas that I'd love to kind of shift and talk about. And the first being positioning, like, what is it? I mean, you're talking positioning, positioning strategy. I just mm-hmm. want to make sure everyone's really clear on yeah. what it is and what it isn't and why does it matter? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a, a, it's a business strategy. It's deciding what you are and what you're not. And it's, it's the, what you're not is the hard part. Um, I, you know, there are a lot of good models and frameworks for business strategy. The, the, the one that I, that I teach basically is the idea that you, and we all agree with, with this, just, it, it's just a, a sensible thing to say, look, you can't, stand for everything and you can't serve every kind of client. Um, you can be excellent in something, but you can't be excellent in everything. So the agencies and, and other businesses that go out there and say, this will sound familiar, we're a full service integrated marketing communications firm serving a wide range of clients. That That's the default so-called positioning strategy for, for most professional firms. You'll just visit any website at random of an agency or a law firm or an accounting firm, you'll see those words, full service, most of all. That is not a strategy. It's the absence of a strategy. It's it's saying we, we do everything for everybody. And so what what's needed is some apply some critical thinking to say, okay, let's back up here. Who really is your market? Is everybody your market? Or do you have expertise in certain categories and, and business segments? And, and what are those? Also, your service offering. You can't be best in class in everything, but you, you can be best in class in some things. So let's define what those things are. And then let's talk about your, your, method, your, your methods and you know, your, your, your purpose and things that get deep. The, the four things I teach are what, who, way, and why. So the what is what are your competencies where you can be best in class? The who, what are the markets in which you have deep expertise? The way is how do you deliver that in a in a unique way? And then finally, why is is your purpose, uh, which is the, the the most difficult of all those four questions? So every business needs to think through those four questions to have a memorable differentiating positioning strategy. And how does a firm or an agency know where to draw the line? I mean, I think that a real common problem that I see, and and I know I personally even suffer from it, is, you know, you start narrow, and then in this crazy world of marketing and branding and communications, you just start to bleed slowly or quickly into other areas. You start to touch other areas. You start to think, oh my gosh, if I don't deliver the next step in the process, my beloved client is going to go to my competitor and then they're going to wine them and dine them and take them over. And to be honest, I even feel like I've had that happen a couple of times, not every time, but you know, I sure. can, I, I'm, I'm talking for personal experience. So like, how do you know where to draw that line and how to be broad enough, but certainly not too broad? Yeah, great, 
great question because I, I think it's human nature to diversify. It, it's true, actually, that most businesses start fairly narrow. And over time, they, they take on client requests and start offering services that they never intended. It's like barnacles on a ship. You know, you never intended for you, – you look back and say, wow, I, I actually didn't – that was not intentional – growth, or I mean, at least not intentional, an intentional business strategy it was quite unintentional. We just go to a client meeting and they'd say, hey, uh, can you do our event, the big event we've got planned? And, and you say, you give a halting, uh, yes. And then you go back and meet with your partners and say, hey guys, can we can we do events? And and so you you scramble and, and try and figure it out. Well, that that's so that's human nature because we want to please our clients especially on the front lines of client service uh, what what you have to do is just be clear about the areas that 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 you want uh to to become your core strategy and those that you don't my experience is that it actually increases client trust and respect to tell them you don't do something like no actually we we don't we're not in the events business but we will have we're happy to hook you up with someone who could do a good job for you that increase increases clients respect for, for you to say that, that that you don't do that um because they know that the the things you are doing doing for them that you have some competence and deep expertise in drawing drawing the line is is the hard part of of strategic development deciding what not to do so that's that's a matter of getting a small multidisciplinary group of senior executives, you know, in the firm together and um, making, first of all, convincing that group that that narrow is is better than than broad and that narrow is not the same as small. I mean, that that we really have to fight that one because we we feel like narrow feels niche and small and we're never going to be big but the, the 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 reverse is true i mean starbucks is pretty narrow right coffee and they're on every street corner in the world they're not a full service restaurant you know just take serving all all sorts of <clears throat> different meals in different forms so narrow is not the same as small that i find that the primary hurdle is psychological that most of the time the reason we give in to these requests to do something is that we just we just don't haven't accepted that that actually we'd be better off saying no than saying yes so i was recently told not that recently but you know within the last year told that uh branding is not a discipline it's not a positioning what's your thought on that i think branding is one of the most overused words in in business um i think we 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 throw it around and it, when meaning lots of different things, a, a graphic design firm would I would um, interpret branding as the the look and feel of of the brand. Um, you know, it's not only its logo and its mark, but its packaging and its building and its trucks and you know that that's that's branding. But but the argument is that branding goes much deeper than that. It it's just as much or more in the experience that that brand delivers than than the product ex- itself. I mean, David Ogilvy used to say that a brand is someone's idea of your product. You know, a brand is the idea in the mind of the of the customer of of your product. So, I do think that the the central question around branding, or the first question to ask about it, is 
is about what your business strategy is. Those four questions. Uh, have you decided on a on a target market? You know, who's your customer? What what are you going to feature as core products and services? You have to do that first. It's not because otherwise the 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 branding exercise will be will be superficial it'll it'll just be a, a band-aid when you haven't really done the hard work of developing and defining the positioning strategy am i answering your question yeah totally yeah that's that's great and and let's talk a little bit about uh the second half the get paid for it so mm-hmm. wh- why is pricing so hard like why like, like it really is i mean it's one of these things i look back in my career i probably literally today at lunch i was having lunch with someone who owns a uh a software development firm but same same idea and, and he was talking about challenge like the, the conversation was how hard it is to to deal and, and maneuver around pricing and so like why, why is it so difficult well most of us have never studied it you know i do i do seminars with rooms full of CEOs, CFOs, in some cases from large global multinational communications firms. And I ask how many here have ever read a book on pricing and not a single hand goes up because we don't, it's just not on our radar screen. We, we think, well, we need to know how to run a, a read a balance sheet and an income statement. And we need to understand basic cost accounting to run a business. But none of us have ever studied pricing which is not accounting right it's and that's that's what in the end kind of attracted me to it it's not the science of counting your costs it's the art of making judgments about the value you produce and these are two completely different disciplines if you look at large client organizations they have a finance department and a chief financial officer they also have a pricing department and a chief pricing officer. These are separate disciplines with separate skill sets. In, in most professional firms, that gets conflated. We conflate, you know, cost and price, and we have our finance people doing the pricing, and they're the worst people to be doing the pricing. You, you price based on the value you're creating for your clients, not the cost you incur inside your firms. So... This is a matter of dragging professional firms, kicking and screaming into what is essentially a pricing revolution. Over the last 20 years, there's been a global pricing revolution in, in, among marketers. They have, they have developed a lot of really innovative, interesting ways of pricing their products and services. And you see new, new methodologies invented every other, every other week. But Professional firms are stuck in this old, dusty, bill-by-the-hour paradigm that actually dates all the way back to the Industrial Revolution. They just haven't ever pulled their heads out of the sand to, to see, to even look at what pricing is about. And, and, yeah, and why is that important, though? Like, what, what are they missing, and, and how does that change once they start to, you know, follow this idea of yeah. value-based pricing? Well, it, if you look at the revenue and profit margins of the agency business over the last 40 years, there's been a, not only a steady decline, but a free fall. Agencies used to make 30% margins back in the days of Don Draper, Madman. If you fast forward to the, to the next decade, those margins dropped to 25 and then 20 and then 15. And t- today, the average global agency profit margin is below 9%. Uh, 
So there's there's a real economic imperative for this. That, that this, I guess, if we just keep going in the current cost plus bill by the hour framework, you'll eventually we'll have agencies that generate no profit or negative profit because that's that's what's been happening. So it's it, it's an absolute necessity to to look at a better pricing model. Plus all the interesting research around the what's called the the power of the one percent. Um, in 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 most businesses, the if you improve your pricing by just one percent, which is completely doable, you'll improve your margins by more than ten percent. In some businesses, it's twenty or thirty or forty percent. So it's definitely worth the time and attention of uh, on, both entrepreneurs and managers to improve their pricing. Yeah. And so I've, I've been on this journey of trying to follow value-based pricing. And I think of it a lot like yoga, you know, it's like a practice. It's not yeah, like it is for it's sure. not something that I've like mastered. It's something I'm working towards and getting better. And you know, it's, it's difficult. It's challenging. And there's a lot of different reasons why. I mean, it's weird. I say weird, but maybe it's not. It's, it, I, it's in conflict for me to charge, you know, a big company a lot more and a a smaller company, a lot less for essentially the same service. You know, that's a little bit in conflict. Um, I, I tried to do it, but also, you know, why do you think it, it is so difficult? You know, so it's easy to talk about. It's easy to understand uh, the philosophy and the the idea of value-based pricing, but why is it so difficult to, to put into practice? And what do you recommend to firms that are, that are trying, but maybe struggling a little bit? Well, I, I think it's diff- difficult for professional service providers, it's not so difficult for manufacturers and and others. I mean, they they have no problem charging different prices for the exact same thing to, to different customers. Uh, for us, we feel like that might be slightly unethical, but it's it's not. I mean, it's just it's just capitalism. <laughs> I mean, it's just the way the the, the marketplace works. And I think the reason is because we're tethered to the billable hour. We've come to most people only know the billable hour system. They've spent their entire careers in it. So they've come to equate value and and cost and effort on a one-to-one basis. So if I spend this much effort, it's worth this much. So that, that's the main reason. We it's it's the wrong, it's the wrong paradigm. It's it's the wrong theory of value. Um I mean, the the labor theory of value was developed by Karl Marx. You know that that was the, the idea that that the amount of labor that went into something ought to determine its price. And th- I think we'd all agree that that's a pretty outmoded uh, paradigm. Um, so I think it's just, as I say, more psychological than anything. And it's a journey for sure. It's I'm going to say it took me two or three years to fully wrap my head around it. And, and get comfortable with it. Because when I first heard about it, I thought it was insane. And so you mentioned uh, agencies like in, in, in the model, like, you know, back in Mad Men days. And since then, it's at least, you know, from a revenue standpoint and a, and a margin standpoint, like steady decline. Is the agency model as we know it, is it is it dead or dying? Or where, where do you think it's at right now? Yeah, there, as you probably know, there's a two or three articles a week on, on, on that, with that kind of a headline, right? The agency model is, is dead. I certainly think that the, the agency revenue model is dead. 
and, and that underlies, I think, the health of our overall business model. If you, if you think about a business model being composed of how, how the firm creates value, how it delivers value, and how it captures value. Those, to me, are the three main elements of a business, a successful business model. The deliver value piece is your positioning strategy, your, your what and your who. The deliver value is the, your, your production model and your organizational structure. And the capture value piece is, is your cost structure and, your, and a revenue model. And I would submit most agencies don't have a revenue model. And that's, what's, that's the thing that is most in, in the most making the agency business model overall in the most dangerous because we don't have a revenue model. We have a cost structure that masquerades as a revenue model. I mean, Tesla has a revenue model. Apple has a revenue model. They've got pricing professionals. They've got lots of different ways they price. They test and learn. We we add up our time and send the clients a bill. And that that just is unsustainable and it doesn't align at all with the value that, that we create for our clients. We We create tremendous value that is money we just leave on the table. Yeah, and so using that as the the framework, what does the successful agency look like? Um, the successful agency doesn't do timesheets, doesn't equate activities and efforts with value. Though they are they are inputs. So at, at the at a basic level, we want to move away from obsessing about and charging for and reconciling and analyzing and all the nonsense that most agencies do inputs and instead direct our attention to the actual outputs themselves, the work product and the outcomes that we deliver on behalf of our clients. So successful agencies are the ones that have walked away from obsessing about inputs and charging for inputs and instead have found ways, lots of different ways to charge for the outputs and in some cases the outcomes. And culturally, to, to, to work in an agency that, that is not looking at your utilization rate, they, you're working instead of for a, for a culture of accountability instead of a culture of utilization. You know, those firms don't care if you look busy. They only look, they only care if you're producing results on behalf of your clients. I mean, they're defining productivity as it in the right way. You know, productivity is not busyness. Tim, before I get to my final question, where can our listeners learn more about you? Where, where can they find out more about Tim Williams? Well, I, I do write quite a bit on, on LinkedIn uh, to get a flavor for more of the ways I think and the work I do. I think LinkedIn's a good place to go uh, with the articles that I write there. And the website, ignitiongroup.com. Um, also, that's where I publish a blog, and that's where Stand for Something and Get get Paid for It is explained in a little more detail. Thank you. We'll make sure to link to all those resources in the show notes for easy connection to Tim. Tim, as we come to a close here, if that young eight-year-old radio Tim ran into you today, what do you think he'd say? I think the eight-year-old would be happy uh, that, that this is, that, that I uh, followed that path and found a way to do something that I love and make a living at it. So that's, uh, that's a great, great question. 
And that is Tim Williams of the Ignition Group. I am so fascinated by the topics of positioning and pricing in business. I find it is truly the difference between those businesses that are successful and those that are struggling to stay afloat. I feel like I need to go look at our positioning and pricing as soon as I stop recording this podcast. We'll be linking to all things Tim Williams in the show notes, so please make sure to check him out. And thank you again to Tim Williams and the Ignition Group. Well, that's the show. Until next time. Make sure to visit our website, www.wildstory.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss an episode. I like big stories and I cannot lie. You other storytellers can't deny. 